Hi, good morning and welcome to Boom, it's on the blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. It is 10 o'clock here out in California. Had to shut the blinds because there's a bit of a roaster out here. 106 in Fahrenheit yesterday when I lived down in Bonita. So uh, I know the rest of the world's feeling it chilly. Here in uh, Southern California, it's still nice and toasty. So we're just waiting for Grant from Copernicus Space to come in. He's just messaged us. So to change things up a little bit this week, we're going to start off with chewing the cud, basically kill a little bit of time. And we're going to talk today about UK politics. So even though we're based in California and everyone in the UK used to think US politics was a bit of a joke when Trump was running things, how the tables have turned. So let me bring in this image that's just about to come in right now. And let me maybe make it a bit bigger. There we go. Look at that. Who is that? Liz Truss. Liz Truss has resigned after 44 days in charge. This article here is What Lasts Longer, A Lettuce or Liz Truss? NBC put it out yesterday and the NBC were correct. Liz Truss managed to be the shortest prime minister in British history. Congratulations to her. Congratulations to the Conservative government. They are going to put a third unelected uh, prime minister in charge. Um, and people might say, well, there's only been two because Boris actually got the vote. But Theresa May before that was unelected and got in. And in actual fact, John Major after Margaret Thatcher was unelected and got in. So how does that actually work? And why can you create a system where a lettuce is essentially better than your prime minister? Well, the UK never used to be like this. It used to be a bastion of leadership in the world. It created the British Empire. And now we've got lettuces running the country. Well, anyway, the way British politics works is if the party in charge wants to change their leadership, they can actually have an internal vote of a bunch of rich, conservative wealthy donors to decide who the next prime minister will be. So believe it or not, she was voted in with around about 40,000 votes. Can you believe it? 40,000 votes. That's all it takes to become a prime minister of Britain. And you might think, well, wait a minute, 40,000. That sounds a bit like one of these African banana republic countries. You know, people in the UK would always say that we are politics aren't like that. But unfortunately, it's actually worse. Yes, they had this vote, internal vote after they got rid of Boris Johnson. It dragged on and on for months. She looked like she was going to be this new leader to lead the UK out of recession. She had a mini budget. I don't even know why she wanted to do a mini budget before her Tory party conference. And it went down like a lead balloon. She managed to sink the pound to its lowest it's been. I think, in history against the dollar. So she managed to do that within five days of coming into office. Wasn't really the best of starts. Then she decides that she's going to start sacking people because it's all their fault. 
And once she sacked a few people there, including the chancellor, suddenly they started resigning, other people started resigning, uh, an internal vote of no confidence. And even though she was laughing a couple of days ago when her foreign secretary left, suddenly two days later, she's gone as well. Well, history will show that she is definitely the worst prime minister in British history, but who's going to come back in charge? Well, this is where things start to get a little bit weird and a little bit scary. So let's bring him in once again. Here he is, Boris Johnson. Boris is now throwing his hat back in the ring. So he was voted out with a vote of no confidence. Suddenly, yes, that is his actual hair, similar to Donald Trump's, except his is a little bit longer, is now third favorite to be the next prime minister of Britain. Can you actually believe that? He is now back potentially in charge of the country. So how does that actually work? So for people in America, see, Americans are looking at the UK system thinking, wait a minute, we had American independence essentially from rich English people and rich Scottish people at the time 250 years ago. They no longer wanted to be taxed by the, the king, King George at the time, they didn't want to send taxes back, they wanted to have their own rule, they created their own system to be away from the British. Suddenly, everyone's laughing at US politics, what has happened to US politics, and then suddenly, the UK system is in a complete and utter collapse. So what's actually happened there? Well, Boris Johnson uh, got voted in because of Brexit. Part of the reason was that the UK no longer wanted to have an extra layer of government. I'm not actually disagreeing with that idea, but as part of Brexit, he had to realize that so many of the workers out there were immigrant workers coming into the country. So these were people from Eastern Europe that would come in and do a lot of the jobs in there. All the farm work was coming from, from Eastern Europe. A lot of the low paying jobs, like a lot of the immigrants that come into America, they do the jobs that the typical British young people no longer want to do. So suddenly stopping that immigration coming into the country was a bit of a disaster. So next thing you know, we no longer have people wanting to do low-level jobs in the country. So that didn't start well for them. A lot of his policies and promises to the country coming in sort of fell by the wayside. You know, the pandemic came along. Britain being on its own during the pandemic actually worked worse than actually being part of the European Union. So that was another blow to him. All this money that was supposed to be coming back into the NHS, 350 million a day savings that he was about to do and boost the NHS actually backfired again. So now there's a shortage of nurses in the UK. There's a shortage of doctors in the UK and there's a shortage of funding in the UK as well. All these things that he had promised that would help and you had clowns out there like Nigel Farage, who seemed to think it was the greatest, you know, thing that he did in history. But now suddenly a few lies and a few porky pies and it all goes back the other way. So anyway, he has to leave. They have this vote. Liz Truss comes in. Let's bring it in again. Here's a, an article about it. You know, let's see if we can bring it up a little bit bigger. Liz Truss to quit as prime minister. Exclusive statement expected shortly after the departure of top ministers and evaporation of political authority. And there she is there. They thought she was going to be Margaret Thatcher 
Mark II. Margaret Thatcher lasted for a number of years. Liz Truss, 44 days. You know, it's, it's total and utter embarrassment for the Conservative government. So how does it actually happen that they will not go forward with a general election in the UK? Now, this is where things get weird for Americans, because Americans usually vote in the president. So unless they're impeached then and thrown out, there's no reason why there's not going to be an election for the next president coming into this country. Whereby in the UK, the way the system works is they're about to have a third prime minister, potentially... Big B himself, there he is. Let's bring her back, let's trust her uh, cabbage, you know. So if you're looking at the three of them, so suddenly there's a third person going to come in, and right now that person could be Boris Johnson. So that is absolutely unbelievable. Now, you might think, well, no, that's never going to happen. Why would it not happen? It's his supporters that stuck the knife into her when she came out with her essential policy to, and I, some of her policies, when you think about it, want to kickstart the economy and they want to reduce taxes and provide tax incentives to business. But ultimately, none of it was to help the poorest people in society. So she came in with this real right-wing policy. And the problem with a lot of right-wing policies is they actually leave behind a lot of the poorest people that are out there in society. So old people in the UK, their heating bills are going through the roof. Now, you might be able to keep blaming Boris Johnson on, and not Boris Johnson, uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia, but ultimately the government doesn't need to tax fuel in the country so high. You know, where was the tax break on people at home? You know, if, if you think of taxes being high in fuel in a place like California, taxes on fuel and gasoline in, America, in the UK is super high. I think it's like 89 cents for every dollar spent at the gas station is taxes. So why could she not come in and if she's going to reduce taxes, just give a tax break for the next four months for anyone on fuel duty living at home under a certain salary cap, say 30,000 pounds? or essentially provide free access to fuel for the government picking up the tab for all people at home. Because people are going to be freezing to death already this year. You've already got horror stories out there where people are out sitting at home. It's cold in the UK. They cannot afford to put their heating on. Essentially, they say inflation in the UK is over 10%, but you know your fuel inflation in terms of heating your house, etc., you know, it's at 23, 24%. So essentially, people's cost of living has gone up so much. And if you are operating on the breadline and suddenly the heating of your house comes up, you've got to start making some decisions. And what are you going to do? Not pay your bill. See, this is where she should have come in there and provided the tax breaks to the poorest people in society, rather than saying, I'm only going to provide the tax breaks to the richest people in the UK society. You know, why not just do both? That was the problem. Oh, well, I want to kickstart the economy. I want to provide the top rate of, reduce the top rate of tax for the richest people in the UK. Well, that, they'll still be able to heat their houses over the winter period, even though they live in multi-million dollar mansions. The problem really being is if you're a poor person living in an inner city area, you're living on the breadline, suddenly you're budgeting hard 
inflation's running at 10, 11%, food inflation's running at 16, 17, 18%. Um, inflation for meat is 30%. You know, inflation of fuel duty, 25%. Suddenly it's like that inflation figure they talk about for the poorest people in society isn't the same for the richest people in society. So she absolutely shot herself in the foot and no one wanted to go with her agenda. There was no need for her to do this mini budget when she came in anyway. She just wanted to make her mark and it all blew up and then she sank the pound to the lowest it's ever been. It's actually risen today now. It was nearly one on one with the dollar and now it's about $1.13 to the pound, which is still low compared to what it was 10 years ago, but ultimately it's created this position. So why don't they have a general election in the UK right now? Well, ultimately, you start to think about it is there's absolutely no, they have to have a general election. How can they put it out to, and th this way, they're actually not even going to go out to the Tory government in terms of the party members. So you're not even going to go out to the 45,000 rich Tory members who voted her in in the first place. You're going to go out to even less people. You know, this is basically following Vladimir Putin's vote. To, hey, I'm going to have a vote for change the political system in Russia, whereby I can get an additional four-year term. Who's voting on this? Uh, me. Okay, great. That comes in. Saddam Hussein. You know, we went to war in Iraq based on a dossier of um, weapons of mass destruction. You know, the Tony Blair signed off on that as well. Let's not just blame George Bush on that. We went there. But prior to that, Saddam Hussein elections used to be, there's only one candidate on the election, Saddam Hussein. And if you don't vote for him, you're in a bit of trouble. So basically it would be, oh, Saddam Hussein's won the election with 99.3% of the vote. Yes, Saddam is back. And then the weird thing is, we went to liberate these people and oh, we managed to take a lot of oil out of the country as well at the time as well. You know, up until that point, before the weapons of mass destruction dossier, the entire oil industry in Iraq was essentially a state-run oil industry. It might not be the most efficient, but the oil's right below the ground and they can produce oil in Iraq at, say, $9, $10 a barrel. After the Iraq war, suddenly it's absolutely flipped in its head. And now the Iraq government and the Iraq government oil companies, essentially they are just pass-through entities, whereby now you have the big oil operators running the country in terms of they're running the big oil fields. You're talking about BP, you're talking about Exxon, you're talking about the, the PetroChina, you're talking about all the major, the Russian ones as well, everyone who's actually operating there, Norway, the big Norwegian ones, Statoil, they were all in there running the, the oil operations in the country now, and the Iraqi people get 20% of it. So that was the weapons of mass destruction, and that was actually a Labour government that actually pushed that agenda through as well. But we can sit and talk about these things all day long. But ultimately, if you start to think about it, is how can the UK ultimately have an not have a general election and then suddenly say the inner people in the country now vote for Boris Johnson? So Boris is actually back. 
And there's calls for Boris coming back. You know, it's on Twitter already. You've got backbenchers now tweeting it. Bring back Boris. The hashtag is back. Bring back Boris. It's like it was never as bad under Boris. Boris was fired for lying to the country multiple times. You know, if this was America, he would definitely have been impeached. You know, Trump was impeached for way less stuff than this guy. But this guy is now, it's bring back Boris and unelected again. So, well, he got voted in first time. So this is like crazy. And like, they're not going to want to call a general election because ultimately the problem being is, you know, how can you call a general election if you're going to lose? And people think, well, what do you mean they're going to lose? If they went to the public vote right now, it's an absolute landslide for Labour. The Tories will be out. Now, they've been in charge of the UK for a number of years. It's time for them to move out anyway. They're sort of devoid of all ideas that's coming out there. But again, they're going to drag this out. So the way the UK system works is once you're voted in, you've got up to five years to call a general election or you can just time out. So at the very last day of the five-year period, then you can have another election. It's not like in America, whereby it's just set in stone every four years. The come uh, the in the country, the government party can ultimately, um, how would you say it? They they get to choose the timing of the election. So if they feel the timing is right, and normally they don't wait the entire five years unless they have to. They want to take advantage of that moment in time. Anyway, that's what's happening now. Boris, bring back Boris. And the scary thing is he's third favorite with the boogies. So it's like, so that's the bookmakers are running odds and who's coming back. Suddenly money is getting pumped on this guy. Now, ultimately she was so bad. Let's bring her back in again. Let's have a look. That replacing her with a lettuce seems like quite a good idea replacing the lettuce with Boris, now you're starting to think there's a potential move afoot here, you know? So it's absolutely and utterly crazy. And that is UK politics right now. Americans, you don't understand it. UK system, unless they have a general election right now, it's no better than a one-party system that's happening in other countries in the world. It's, it could be this, if you say, if you told the world right now that this was happening in Rwanda, we'd be laughing at it. We would say, no, oh, the government's out there. It's so corrupt. It's absolutely ridiculous. Look, inflation at 10, 11%. You know, they're coming in with 40,000 people voting them in. In actual fact, we're going to have a, maybe, you know, 300 people deciding who the next prime minister is in the country. Oh, great. And of them, it's like, who's putting their hand out to get cash back payments? Great as well. If we said that, you would just say, oh, that country, Banana Republic, you know, that's a racist thing to say. Anyway, Banana Republic, look at them out there. But this is now the UK running this system. So they have to call a general election. The scary thing is they're not going to do this, you know. And that's ultimately the position that it's in right now which is unbelievable. So it's like, let's have a last quick look at Boris. There he is, potentially the next prime minister. And we're having a look in terms of Liz Truss. Let's have one last look at her. And now she's going to be in charge um, for the next foreseeable future until the new prime minister is announced. 
but you might as well have the lettuce running the country because she's about as useful as that. Right. So we're, as we still wait for Grant to come in, let's speak a little bit about his company, Copernicus Space, a Web3 market space. Let's me bring in their image. Let's see if I can bring this up a little bit higher. There we go. So it's access to essentially a space economy. So what are they actually doing here right now? And they're saying this is a Web3 market space for space assets and investments. And here's all the different uh, people who've been involved in promoting what they're doing, enabling access to space. We tokenize space assets, enable new revenue, providing access to wider commercial and retail market space. And what we create, the space economy has endless economic potentials. Copernicus space will create efficiency, data integrity, widespread participation by enabling access to a broad class of space assets and millions of space-based transactions. And like here they're actually starting to see what they've earned in terms of NFTs and people actually creating NFTs for this. So it's quite confusing really for a lot of people out there. Let's read this little bit of uh, background information on that. While building a national space program, the grandfather, our CEO, and father of our co-founder created his theories about democratizing access to space. The founders of Copernicus Space are making that theory a reality after years of hands-on experience and participation in space initiatives at the Vanderberg Space Force Base. We realized that there's the need for a dramatic solution that empowered the industry to offer on-demand space assets and investment to commercial market and the general market space. And they're ultimately operating out of uh, Los Angeles, Miami, and Warsaw. And then here's some of the partners that are involved in the uh, program itself. So you can see NASA is actually involved in doing this as well. And we had uh, Lady Rocket, who was on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, talking about this itself. So let's think about what they're actually trying to do and what is actually happening in the space industry right now. See, all we look at in terms of space and what space is able to create is ultimately there's the race to the moon. There was a race between America and Russia to put a man on the moon. And that was what they used to say. Now it's a woman, now it's a person, uh, now it's a pronoun on the moon. But ultimately, you think about it, like, why are we so obsessed with space again? And what it is that they're doing that's slightly different to actually what's happening in the market space out there? So ultimately, if you think of space, who's involved in space out with the governments? So the Chinese government are getting heavily involved. Russia is getting heavily involved. The U.S. is heavily involved. Essentially, every country now is getting, India is now starting to get involved in space because we realize that, you know, we're just this small, essentially, planet spinning around the sun. And there's this solar system. There's this galaxy. There's this universe out there that needs to be explored. Nearly everywhere on Earth has been explored. But what are the advantages? Well, up until now, if you think about, let me just, I'll actually change the space economy from Liz Truss. 
so if you think about space, right, so there's Elon Musk involved in the space industry. You have um, Jeff Bezos now involved in the space industry. Richard Branson now involved in the space industry. So out with NASA and the major governments and the government or, uh, in, uh, organizations on behalf of the different governments across the world involved in the space industry, now suddenly you've got billionaires involved in the space industry as well. So what are they starting to do? Well, you know, not all of them who are involved in the space industry are wanting to fly out into space. They're wanting to start to develop it. So Elon Musk's wanting for us to move to Mars. Now, why is he wanting to move to Mars? Because ultimately he sees essentially, if you look back in terms of the expansion of the sun, if you went back billions of years, Earth would have been like Mars essentially two, three billion years ago. So as the sun starts to expand, suddenly more heat comes across. So the way it works is, for people to understand is, you know, the Earth basically, it's not actually a perfect sphere. So what it is, is it's actually operating at a small angle. Now the Earth spins around like that, right? And then it spins around the sun. And depending on the, the angle of the Earth at the time, this is how we move in and out of ice ages. So, I'll, you know, if you think about it is we're moving, we're actually coming out of an ice age right now. So the world, the planet is heating up. Now, people might say, oh, well, you know, we're speeding up the heating of the planet with CO2 emissions. You know, I, I definitely believe what we're creating on Earth, essentially by chopping down huge amounts of the rainforests, we are, you know, changing the climate that's happening here. But let's not realize is that if we start to get to net zero, the climate won't change anyway. Of course, it's going to change. It's been changing over history and time. We will ultimately move back into an ice age, you know, I think within 20,000 years. And then, you know, it'll drift and that'll be where the Earth moves in and out. But ultimately, we are seven and a half billion people on Earth. We are chopping down all the rainforests. We are like gannets going through everything, or the locusts. So we are basically going through all the vegetation. We're eating into wildlife where animals lived. Suddenly, there's variations in climate change, whether we're speeding this up in terms of what we're doing with fossil fuels and coal production and oil production. Ultimately, we are changing the planet itself, but the planet is also changing. So if you think about it, why wouldn't we want to move to Mars? So if you actually watch Elon Musk speak about this, ultimately Mars is a place that he believes the future of the human race will have to survive. Now, you know, if there's not any sort of nuclear war, which is going to happen out in Russia, if there's not any changes to the planetary systems, I don't think it's going to change. It's not as bad as everyone says. I don't believe that. But, you know, in millions of years, if we're a species on this planet, you know, ultimately the Earth is going to change and become more like Venus because the Earth is, the sun is going to expand, it's going to get hotter, and it's going to be the way we live right now essentially it's not going to be livable in the way it is this specific moment in time. So suddenly let's move to Mars. Now at first that sounded like sort of Star Trek stuff back from the 60s and 70s but really if you think about it is we're starting to 
put probes out there. We're starting to create this opportunity to live out there. And, you know, ultimately, Elon Musk is wanting to create in his lifetime the first colony of UK, of UK, of human race out in Mars. So he's starting to want, he wants us to move out to essentially Mars as a new colony. So people suddenly think, well, does that affect me in a day-to-day life? You know, it's not really, but you've now got a billionaire starting to push the boundaries and you've got private companies starting to push the boundaries. So if you think of Copernicus space, what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to democratize ownership to allow people out there starting to get access into this system. So they think, well, what have they been able to do? Well, ultimately, we are starting to send, you know, like any rocket that we send to different planets, like to the moon and stuff like that. We actually put stuff in these rockets and we send it out to the moon and we leave it there for future generations. So in thousands of years, they'll be on the moon and then they'll suddenly find this box and we've locked all this stuff in a box and they'll be able to think, why did the people of Earth 1000 years ago send all this stuff to the moon? But now Copernicus Space has actually got space on rockets going to the moon, so they are now able to send stuff out there. Now, up until now, when we were sending things, it was actually physical objects you could only send. What they're able to do is, because of digitization, they're actually digitizing. So people are getting NFTs. They're creating NFTs, essentially putting on some form of flash dive or some way of actually holding this NFT, and they're actually sending it out to the moon itself. So suddenly, these some of these NFTs you're getting created with these uh, that you see on their essentially Web3 market space will be on the moon forevermore. Now, because they've got a small space in this rocket, and if they had put some physical uh, object in there, it limits what they're able to send. But now what they're able to send is this ability to send masses of stuff out there. And then if you want to create an NFT and if you get it minted through Copernicus Space and it sells well, that NFT will be available on the moon essentially forevermore. So if for some reason our society ends up going through some sort of disaster, we wipe out, what actually happens? Well, ultimately, what you'll find is that in years to come, all these NFTs that they've created will be on the moon. So people will be able to access it. Well, that sounds okay. But really, if you start to think about it is you can create something now whereby if the... uh, If the internet broke and then suddenly we had some mass electrical surge and we all went offline then and they've sent this stuff out to the moon, then ultimately it's going to last forevermore. It's a bit like the old putting a note in a bottle out to sea if you're on a desert island and it floats around and then somebody gets the bottle with the note inside. Really, that's taken it forward. So that's one aspect of this Web3 Uh, economy that they've created. The other thing is satellite technology. Now, you might think, well, what does satellite technology is? And this is where a a key part of the space race is. So why do governments want to get involved in this? Well, ultimately, when we were actually transferring information across and data across, it was never through satellites. So 
if you thought about Putin, let's speak about what's happening in Ukraine with Russia. The first thing he did in the, the beginning of the war when Russia invaded Ukraine was to knock out their communication systems. Ultimately, they were getting a lot of their power from Russia. They were knocking everything out. And they've created this, essentially, we've knocked out their communication systems. They can no longer access the internet. We can control the media and we can control the information flow which is happening out there. So if you think back to the Gulf War, which we spoke about before, ultimately, when the US and the UK invaded Iraq, the information that we were able to uh, get through the media was essentially controlled by the media. It was the information that the government wanted you to see that's coming out there. Because people on the ground didn't have that information. But now, because we've all got iPhones and we've all got some sort of smartphone and we've got access to the internet, well, we can actually film this thing. So we can choose that. So when they had these types of rockets in the past, oh, it's the Patriot missile. Whatever missile they fire, boom, we just take it out. Every, you know, success rate's 99.3%. The bombs that we are sending into Iraq, boom, they're not killing any bad guys. They're not killing any good guys. They're so, you know, we can actually get this thing so accurate. It can come through a window and boom, knock out the bad guy that's fighting on behalf of Saddam Hussein or the Taliban or things like that. And ultimately, there's no civilians killed. And then because the media is controlling this information and it's propaganda either way, and if you look at any war going back, propaganda is key depending on what side you are. Propaganda is still there just now. But because suddenly we've all got these devices, we can now basically film it. Well, wait a minute. Putin says he's not hitting any civilian targets. Shh. There's, there's, there's a block of flats. There's a hospital. There's a school. He's just basically firing bombs into these things. We can film it, we can upload it, we can look it online, and we can see whatever anyone else is sort of disputing this information, that information shows that he's firing rockets into civilian targets and we can control this. But if he knocks out the communication systems in the country, so he can actually just blow up all the sort of you know pylons where they've actually got the towers, where they're carrying information, then we can't do this. But because Elon Musk has had satellites in space, he can ultimately just go, well, wait a minute, I'm just going to put a satellite over Ukraine. And then suddenly everyone in Ukraine has now got access to the internet through Elon Musk's satellite. And then information on the ground from the people within the country now can be dispersed through this access to technology. And that is the power of satellites. And that's why people need to understand that. And ultimately, when you were looking at the space race, you know, and Trump was space force, you know, he wanted a space force. We're going to conquer space. We'll have a space force. It becomes sort of James Bond type characters. But I think it was the one with, um, not view to a kill. I'll think of it in a minute. It was with Roger Muir. But ultimately, you're going back to that type of technology where they're controlling that information. Now, billionaires and people out there are putting up their own satellites. But really, what's Copernicus Space able to do? Well, one of their key aspects of what they're actually running is they're now using satellite technology to essentially track port poachers in Africa who are killing rhinos. So 
what they're doing is they're killing rhinos, chopping off the horns. They're sending it out to Asia. People are using this as, uh, for different types of herbal medication, things like that as well. So ultimately, these poachers are killing rhinos. And it's very difficult because this, the amount of land or the size of the land on these reserves are so big that, you know, you just can't monitor it person to person. But with satellite technology, suddenly be able to track the rhinos, once the rhino, the, track the poachers, track the information is completely changed. So Copernicus Space is starting to use satellite technology. And if you invest in anything that's involved in Copernicus Space, they're now providing this ability for you to have a small ownership through their Copernicus Space coins, through their platform. And this is actually helping track rhinos and stop poachers uh, shooting rhinos as well. So you think, well, but wait a minute, this technology now can be used for good as well as bad. So ultimately, this is what, and we're just starting to scratch the surface of what we can actually do in space. If you think of what the internet's done in the last 20 years. So the internet of the last 20 years is back in the early 90s, you know, everything we did was by phone. Uh, and fax. You know, young people won't even know what a fax machine is, but this is how you sent documentation. Suddenly, internet came along, we had access to email. And that was, the, that was a huge thing at the time. Suddenly, I can send you an email, which was essentially an electronic letter. I can click a button. It can go down the, and it was used by the own old copper phone lines before it became all fiber. And it would run down there. You switch your phone off. You'd use this to change the communication. It would pixelize the letter, it would ultimately take it along this communication line. It wasn't instantaneous, but it was very quick. And then suddenly it would come up somewhere else in the world and you would be able to send this email. 25 years later, the internet has evolved in so many ways that this technology has changed absolutely everything. So the blockchain comes along. So what's the blockchain going to do? Well, blockchain essentially is like the next iteration of the internet. Ultimately, it, people talk about it as Web 3.0. They talk about it as finance of the internet, this ability to essentially transfer money and transfer money in a way that they've never been able to do, and an ability to share information in a way they've never been able to do. So ultimately, if you think about Bitcoin, I always say it in a sort of simplistic way, is what Bitcoin did is it's a technology. Now, most people think of Bitcoin as a commodity. You know, you're buying Bitcoin to ultimately get amount of value into the, this certain cryptocurrency. So say Bitcoin's worth $20,000. You want to buy half a Bitcoin for $10,000. Ultimately, you're holding on to this $10,000. And because there's a finite amount of Bitcoin, that ultimately you're hoping over the next five years, if you hodl, which is to hold on to the cryptocurrency for that five years and not sell it, it will go up in value in the same way you invest in gold and silver in any type of stock. But what Bitcoin actually did, which was amazing as a technology, was it was allowing you to transfer money instantaneously anywhere in the world, cutting out essentially banking fees, cutting out international transaction fees, cutting out finance charges, 
you know, ultimately it was the cost was you buying a good from here to say to Asia instantaneously and you can send that money and the user gets that money and it happens like that. Where before when you sent money, it went through uh, multiple banks. So if you think about that, what's that about to do? It's a bit like email at the start of the internet. It's actually changed everything and how we transport information for finance, everything's going to be changed because of what I've actually explained what Bitcoin did. So ultimately, banks are about to have to change the way they make their economic model because they're holding on to this idea that they charge you fees to use your money. But as the banking systems change, ultimately, some banks will change. They will take over. They will run their own blockchains, but they will not be able to charge the fees to hold your money and the way you're going to access money is going to change again. And then because this technology is coming along and now we can have fractional ownership of things through things like tokenization, which I'm involved with in terms of tokenizing energy assets, ultimately what it does is it allows not the richest people in society access to finance, but also the poorest people in society accessing finance in a different way than they've ever had before. And ultimately, a lot of that is asset ownership. So if you think of what Copernicus Space is doing, they're going to this space economy. And I've just talked about satellites. You start to think of what satellite technology can start to do. It can change everything. You're no longer affected by the weather in terms of information and what you're holding information. But then suddenly these satellites become powerful. Because the best thing if you were Putin right now is you want to basically send up a spaceship and knock out Elon Musk's satellites because ultimately the next thing you know is it blocks out all communication that's coming to Ukraine right now. So therefore, when they talk about Trump with his space force and other countries wanting to create variations of space force, you know, the first thing they want to do is to essentially control the satellite technology in the same way we protect shipping routes right now. You know, goods are getting transported across the world. If we didn't protect these big, huge tankers that are basically transferring goods across the world in some form or other and creating safety to ship things back and forward, ultimately pirates would come on and steal all the loot. It still happens in certain parts of the world, but ultimately the days of the pirates have changed all we're doing is moving this forward into space. So what Copernicus Space are trying to do is they're saying as a group, we can actually have power in this new space economy that's happening out there through democratization of ownership and fractionalized ownership of the assets that were going out there. And it's just starting out there. So that's what's so interested interesting in what these guys are actually looking to do. Ultimately, I was wanting Grant to come on and explain more about his space economy. Let me check the email one last time. He dropped me a mail. I know he's a busy guy. So it's, uh, and I didn't want to do it, but let's have a look. Uh, I'll wait and see if the email's coming in. But um, no, I didn't get another email from him. So we're going to have to bring him back in another time to speak about Copernicus space. But if you think of the space economy, this new Web3 market space, this access to satellite technology, this ability to create life on other planets, you know, if you think of the 
you know, man, woman, how long we've been here. And if you think of, you know, the, the universe is about 13 billion years old, you know, this planet's 5 billion years old, you know, essentially prehistoric man, we're going back 5 million years, you know, we've been on here, we've only really been keeping records, you know, for essentially 3000 years, it was really philosophies just started back, you know, with Plato and Socrates and people like that, 300 years BC. So it was only then, you know, 13 billion years, it's only 300 years BC, which is 2,500 years that we really started to keep information. So Aristotle wrote these 200 documents and only 30 odds survived. And Aristotle and a lot of his thinking in terms was adopted by the Catholic Church you know, that created the way our society started to form. So, and that's only going back, and the, the Catholic Church, Church started to implement that essentially a thousand years ago. So you're only looking back a thousand years, and it's only in the last hundred, and only the last 50 years, that we've really started to share information and being connected as a species as we are right now. So what's interesting about the space economy is that this is the basically the future of how the world's going to be going forward. And there's so many good things from this space economy and a company like Copernicus Space, well, they are one of the leaders in the field. So apologies for all the, the space geeks out there who are wanting to meet Grant and they've just had my basic background on the Copernicus Space. But the good thing is, you know, we've started out We've done a little bit of information on that. Liz Truss has finally got the boot in the UK, going down in history as the worst prime minister in UK history. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. There's been some beauties in charge. But essentially, let's bring her back in for one last one from NBC. Here we go. Liz Truss. Let's see you there. Yes, congratulations, Liz Truss. You are worse than a cabbage. A lettuce, uh, sorry, a lettuce in the UK. Maybe a cabbage is a little bit better than a lettuce. Who knows? Anyway, thanks to everyone who's joined us for the show. Apologies, Grant couldn't make it. You've been watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. Have a nice day.